welcome to creating wealth through passive apartment investing podcast in this show we will discuss about best and worst experiences about passive and active apartment investing and i am your host ramakrishna let's begin the show today's our guest is dilan marma from equity group welcome dilan hey thanks so much rama great to be here yeah thanks for being on the show a little bit about dilan dilan is a principal at the equity group a vertically integrated multifamily and manufactured housing community investment company he has sponsored over 55 million in transactions over the past or the last 4 years through joint ventures and syndications and is proficient with many areas of the business prior to founding the equity group dilan joined rand partners in 2017 and helped facilitate the growth of the portfolio from 800 units to 1600 units with that dilan would you like to add anything to your background No, I think you know, while still early on in the career, it's been a ride so far and I think that pretty much sums it up. Cool. So how did you get into real estate and multifamily, Dilan? Yeah, so as uh, some of the younger side of things when it comes to investing at uh, 26 years old, um, I started off in real estate at uh, 20 years old. I'm actually, I moved from upstate New York where I grew up up to Southern California with the idea of pursuing real estate in any capacity I could get into hopefully on the investing side and uh, began to work for a real estate investment and education company out in San Diego and was surrounded by a lot of great mentors at the time got into my first rental property uh, within the first year of of being out there and uh, started off you know taking a sort of a, a, a turnkey single family investment and and growing that into a few and and uh from there realizing that I really loved the business and I wanted to get into a, a vehicle that could help me scale and and eventually be in more of an ownership seat and uh, that's when I started to really deep dive into multifamily and the world of multifamily syndication and uh you know one thing led to the next after enough time studying it i ended up uh you know getting into my first deal as a joint venture and then started to get into syndications and and so on so that's my story in a in a nutshell cool and why into multifamily and manufactured housing community yeah so initially it started off with just more traditional sort of bc class multifamily and i saw that you know, i think over the last decade uh, i think a lot of people became well aware of the potential for a great risk adjusted return in this space and i really uh, had full intentions of of continuing and and probably solely doing bnc class multifamily when i first got in as i think many do and i you know i think uh, in our you know in the current environment i think there's so much uncertainty in other avenues of real estate investing and if you're going to be working with investor capital i think you you should certainly i think a lot of people feel more comfortable being focused on something that that is backed by the level of stability Uh, that we have and i think many will have a you know an optimistic long-term view on multifamily playing a a key role in real estate investing and there's not too much that can come in and completely change that knock on wood but that that i think we can see so uh, i think just the stability uh, and the ability to you know uh, drive value while also finding in place yield from day one on multifamily made it very very attractive and as of recently getting into more of the you know we say manufactured housing communities or many refer to them as mobile home parks that's been a a more recent i don't want to say a complete pivot because i do intend to continue to buy bnc class uh, and di- different you know asset types within the multifamily space but i consider i consider mobile home parks to be 
an, an additional you know subsector of of multifamily ultimately and, and, and i think it's ideally the kind of step below a lot of workforce housing apartments comes mobile home parks, but it's also made up what I realized after doing a lot of further exploration. It's, it, it also has a very different risk profile. And there's a lot of different types of value add deals in the space that I think to some degree are not being overvalued or always viewed as, as a lot of multifamily, you know, the flavor of the day has been sort of value add multifamily. Um, once you know, the in-place yield became tougher to find unstabilized assets, whereas the mobile home parks, I think there is there are, are a lot of value-add opportunities out there. We can cover you know, different types of them, but there's a lot of value-add opportunities that can produce really, really nice returns. And I think the, um, the risk profiles within these things can be uh, phenomenal if you find uh, the right deals. So closing on uh, the first one of those, the week uh, of recording this podcast, and we have, uh, we have two more under contract and partnering with you know, uh, an experienced partner in the space and, and uh, you know, have big plans to continue to you know, have a lot of our allocation go towards the MHP, MHC space. Awesome. And thanks for sharing that. And also congratulations. I appreciate it. Sure. And what challenges you faced during your multifamily journey, Dylan? Yeah. So as far as challenges, I, I know discussing sort of the um, worst experiences or challenges along the way, I, I don't intend, well, let's start off with more of just a challenge of, of getting into the space. I think uh, a lot of people will face very similar challenges. And I'm sure you have listeners of all different experience levels. Getting in requires a, a serious amount of determination and focus, in my opinion. I think there's a lot of shiny objects and you have to really stick to one thing. You have to know where you're going, right? I, I know once I made the commitment to get into multifamily, I, requiring, you know, saying yes to this means saying no to a lot of other opportunities. So it did take a lot of kind of short-term sacrifice and, and you know, staying uh, tunnel vision on getting in until you start to really make some sort of traction and momentum. And I think, you know, for me getting started, you know, a few years back when I was in my early twenties, it also required me really getting educated at a high level. And, you know, I took all sorts of different classes and took all sorts of, you know, courses and found mentors and, and really learned the, the business inside now until I felt like I could, I could articulate what it is that we were doing and how things worked and analyze deals to you know high level early on that. And I think that helped uh, people quickly take me seriously. And I never really had an issue with, uh, with age being uh, an obstacle as some might view it early on. So that, I think that was a big initial challenge that was overcome just from you know, the, the focus and, and educating myself. And then secondary, uh, once you're in and operating deals, you're, you're, you know, the allocation of your time starts to shift a whole lot. And a lot of you goes a lot more into asset management and, you know, how you're creating value and keeping everything afloat and keeping your, you know, investor communications in sync. And, and um, I think more of the, any challenges that I've faced have really been a result, uh, if I sum it up into two things, two big, bigger learning lessons. Uh, number one is, you know, really understanding at a more granular level that the quality of your tenant base and who's going to be living on the property, who should you be marketing to and, and uh, who's there currently, most importantly, so you can sort of predict what the outcome is going to be once you have taken over the property. And, and two is just having the right management systems and the right teams in place to effectively you know, take a proactive approach to keeping the property fully occupied, handling any maintenance or, or CapEx issues uh, accordingly. Cool. And thanks for sharing that. So, and you have experience in both JVs and syndications. So would you share some benefits one or other? Yeah, so I look at it as joint ventures can play a, a key role in your, your your toolbox and being able to handle certain deal types. And I think oftentimes getting started, uh, joint ventures are especially attractive because you 
can use them as a way to, you know, using your own money at risk and other partners that are taking on equal amount of risk for equal amount of opportunity to some degree to, to build a, a track record for yourself. So, you know, my first deal was just a, a joint venture uh, where myself and four others, we, we all went in on a deal in actually in upstate New York near where I went to school. And, uh, you know, it was a good cash flow from day one. And, and um, you know, it's sort of a, I'd say like a, a single or a double on paper is, you know, it's going to be a quality deal. We're going to eventually do a refi and pull some cash out. And, and just, you know, it just proved, uh, kind of proved the model uh, very well for us. And that was, that was helpful. And then in addition, I, two other joint ventures, uh, one on at 150 units and the other one on, on a 62 unit, one involves some seller financing. So when seller financing was involved to where there was not really a large requirement, you know, or hardly any requirement on down payment comparative to the, uh, comparative to the purchase price, um, it, you know, just made a lot of sense to do a joint venture and have it as a long-term sort of a personal asset. Um, so in those rare events, uh, I think JVing or, or doing a deal directly yourself um, can make a lot of sense. And those you know, typically will don't come often, but they, they will come if you keep doing the right things and building relationships. And uh, on the on the larger one um, that we did, I think it was it was a heavy, heavy value add deal where it was not going to cash flow at all for probably I think it took us 18 months to get it cash flowing, but we were getting it at a great price per pound or price per door. And um, it, it made sense, but it was not something that had a risk profile that at the time we felt uh, comfortable sharing with our investors. So again, that, that's sort of subjective and everyone's got a different strategy that they actively promote to their investors. But I think uh, if it's something that's outside of your your typical wheelhouse, it can also be good to uh, to join venture on the first, the first one of that nature and so on. Cool. And thanks for sharing again. And like what best practices you have implemented to scale up to 55 million in four years or 800 doors to 1600 doors? Well, number one, I would say certainly in the beginning, it certainly is going to be in your best interest to partner with, with experience. Uh, I'm a big advocate for having the right mentors in place and, and building the right team around you. Again, I stress, especially when you begin to work with uh, in investor capital, you know, I think it's in not only your best interest, but also your investor's best interest to always make sure you have someone of experience there, whether it's as an advisor or, you know, have, I think best case scenario, you have them with, with uh, you know, stake in the property as well. So for, for me on some of the, you know, the early larger deals that uh, we brought investors into, it was me and, and a team of us that, you know, has, has been in the business and, you know, to combine uh, decades of real estate experience, which certainly helped uh, big time. Um, and the same thing goes with the mobile home parks uh, we're primarily targeting, or my partner has, you know, a strong track record in that. And we're both able to bring kind of unique perspectives to the table, having the apartment background and the MHP uh, background as we view deals. So I think that's always important to mention. I think as, a, as an investor, I'd always want to see someone of experience, you know, having some kind of skin in the game on the deal, you know, to, especially when you start dealing with some of these larger deal sizes. And then two beyond that, I think it's, it's really about being able to have good systems of of oversight with the property management. I know a lot of folks are using third-party management and could talk for you know hours on the, the pros and cons of third-party versus you know in-house management because um, the majority of my deals have been done with in-house management, but I've also used several third-party managers along the way. But whether you use in-house or, or third-party, either format requires systems of accountability. You know, I don't think a lot of, especially a lot of LPs or passive investors understand or see the extent unless they've had the direct experience of how much you know good oversight on the manager can play a role in your your long-term success in any kind of uh, a project uh, if you can if you can really get in weekly routines and be able to receive weekly updates and not necessarily micromanage but at times 
micromanage you know, the, the, uh, the management when needed to get in there and make sure that we're taking a proactive approach towards you know, keeping occupancy high towards any kind of ongoing CapEx issues and, and so on. Just kind of having that, putting that sweat equity in and having the active pulse on your management will, will therefore improve your in-place yield. And, and over time, having good in-place yield is going to you know, give you a nice exit as well. So I'd say just really making sure you don't take your eye off the ball when it comes to um, actively managing the deals. And, and then I think to build trust with your investors long-term, um, that also you know, requires a lot of active communications along the way and noting any notable you know, things that take place throughout the month, having a good system for reporting on those on hopefully a monthly basis or maybe an in-depth quarterly uh, discussion. Yeah, those are like great points. So when do you go for refinance? When, well, I, I think when the deal's ready for it, ideally, I think, uh, you know, there usually hits a point on any kind of property that you are going to evaluate what your ability to sell looks like and what your ability to refinance looks like. I definitely have a long-term outlook. And I think a lot of people say this, but I, I think I definitely have an appetite for long-term holds. And if, if the refinance can make sense, I would definitely lean towards uh, a refinance if we can return a decent amount of capital. And you know, in, in that event, we always would keep investors in the deal for their same level of ownership. But you know, I think a refinance can be a really attractive option because then you're getting your, eventually, if you can take a decent amount of your initial chips off the table and still be receiving cash flow, I think it makes a, makes a really good, really quality thing. And especially right now with where interest rates are and you know, looking at a looking at a lot of refinances all at once. Cool, cool. So how are investors compensated upon your refinance? Yeah. So the way that that works is the, the all of the proceeds go directly towards a complete return of capital for the investors. So this is this is paying back their initial investment. And at that point, they're still staying in for an equal amount of ownership in the deals. So for instance, if the investors initially had 70% of the profits after your 8% pref, we'll say that the refinance was a grand slam and it's probably becoming less it's definitely becoming less common in today's market, but it, we'll say that the refinance, just for simplicity's sake, took all the investor, paid all the investors' money back. So the investors invested five million dollars, and at the refinance, that five million dollars got returned back to investors. So at that point, the investors they have all of their initial capital back, and at that point, you no longer have a preferred return because remember, the preferred return is usually based on unreturned capital. So you no longer owe the eight percent on the five million dollars anymore, but at that point, you will be splitting all of the cash flow, uh, 70% to the investors and 30% to the sponsor after the refinance. So it becomes, usually it's a win-win. It's a investors have all their initial money back off the table and they're still getting a, a significant amount of cash flow um, long-term, the majority of, of cash flow and, and the same thing at the proceeds of sale. And the sponsor is now able to dip into you know, more of the cash flow because they are not only receiving some promote after the pref is, is achieved. Cool. So would you share any of your best apartment investing experience so far? Well, best experiences so far, I would say number one is just getting getting started. I think, you know, the as I mentioned, that the way that you allocate your time in the business, it does take a big shift once you really get going. I think a lot of people starting off spend a lot of their time networking, a lot of time looking at deals and you should never take that time for granted because you can really do a lot of work on your foundation at that point. But once you get into the business and you really start to see, you're, you're looking at statements, you're managing the managers, you're you're creating processes to you know improve 
improve your, your takeovers and improve your on, ongoing asset management and whatnot. I think there's there's a lot to be said about that. So I think, you know, for me, just that that first deal is definitely pivotal in, in terms of just le- learning lessons and, you know, really proving the, the model out. And I like to also say the first syndication deal um, was also uh, a great one as it really uh, emphasized sort of the, the bread and butter of the value add model. Um, we took uh, we took a deal and within the first year, we had the income up well over 30% of you know the uh, the gross income, which was ahead of our initial projections. But we, we increased you know, a lot of the, it was a typical sort of value add deal that was ran by a mom and pop. And we took the rents from somewhere in the 500s to somewhere in the 700s. And, uh, you know, really just watching the business plan come to life over time and creating creating value and and just putting us in a position where we now have the option to refinance or if we exit we'll have an attractive exit i think I think it's just a it's a great experience to uh to go through and and both of those you know those, those early kind of wins will say definitely help i think set you up for for long-term success so i always recommend never taking on too much risk and really being selective about when you pull the trigger and i think especially as you're learning the business just make sure you don't need a super high risk deal to to create a, a good win you can have a, a really great win off a, off of a pretty straightforward deal oftentimes. Yeah, those are great points again. So would you share any of your worst apartment in investment experience so far? Yeah, so not to sound too diplomatic as a number of, you know, a lot of the deals that I've, I've done at this point are still actively out there. So I can't get too specific on, on any specific deals right now, but I, I want to just share, reemphasize on, on two key learning lessons or two key areas that I think, um, you know, I, I've learned from through mistakes over time or, or through just, you know, any, any kind of bad experiences. And, and number one is really understanding the quality of the, the tenant base. And I want to give a practical way of doing so. A lot of times when you are learning about due diligence and you're seeing most people have a due diligence checklist of some sort. And a lot of times we emphasize the lease audit, but I highly encourage to take a step further and go into an application audit. So if you're in most other areas of real estate, you're going to really scrutinize the tenant credit quality, right? And the lease doesn't really tell you very much about that. So you want to know who's actually behind the leases that you're assuming upon your takeover. And that can tell you a whole lot about what your performance is going to look like if you're increasing rents, or even if you're just keeping the deal as is and how your occupancy is going to react. So by number one, you can always ask to see what the screening policies are uh, from the existing management. Uh, I know a lot of times in kind of industry standard, you know, for good management companies to have uh, a certain baseline of, uh, of credit score and then typically have three-time income and then maybe sometimes having additional security deposits or initial additional down payments to compensate for those that have lower credit scores. So you do want to have a good understanding on that. Uh, and then two, if you can actually get your hands on the applications and typically this is something that I do on-site, it's not as much something that takes place or I expect them to send digitally, but on-site doing a heavy review of the applications will tell you, you know, who who is employed, who's not employed, and where are they working. You know, what is the general sort of demographic makeup of of the the property. Um, you know, and 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 does that match the story that you've been told by the management? Because there there can be instances where you know you know you you may think that you're buying a deal that's just for example, you know, it could be uh, you could think that it's all working class people and it's not really a student population, and then you realize uh, it's a heavy student population. 
right? And uh, you have you have a, a ton of move outs at the time that you know, school goes out of session and you were busy marketing towards working class folks when you realized that you had to to pivot on your, your marketing strategy or that can impact your lending options and so on, right? So, you know, that's just one example, but really emphasizing like, you know, paying attention to the quality base and uh, the quality of the, the resident base through um, doing more of a thorough screening and understanding who's on your, your, your property. I think will help you better predict different things that could uh, could come arise in the future. And then two is again having the right having the right management teams in place. And I, I would stress to be proactive on this as far as you should be looking ahead to see any issues that that could arise and addressing them before they rise. And if there are issues that are arising, then being getting to them as quickly as as possible. So I think. Common examples of this predicated upon the lease up, you know, I, yeah, occupancy plays a, always plays a big factor. Occupancy and, and collections and you know, delinquency are, are things you always have to be keeping your eye on. So to impact the top line, making sure that you are number one, paying a lot of attention to the way that they're, you know, bringing in new residents, um, that should be pretty straightforward, but addressing that in the front end, making sure you have good, again, screening policies. And then two, making sure that if there's if there's a number of move outs, you're kind of watching month to month, how many move outs you can anticipate that month and making sure that the move outs aren't just getting replaced after they move out. Uh, there should be proactive marketing to the point of the day that they move out, you should hopefully have someone moving back in a week later, right? Um, after the, the turns take place. And in addition to that, paying a lot of attention to the way that they are running the property as far as the, the repairs and maintenance. So this is getting more towards the bottom line stuff, um, watching your, your expenses, I would be paying a lot of attention to the how things are getting repaired are every single time, are they just doing a completely new paint job and on the the interior, you know, from my experience, good managers should oftentimes more often than not need to completely repaint the interiors because people tend to scuff the walls and it tends to make sense. Um, but I think your number should be around 70%. Around 70% of turns should actually be a complete repaint. 30% should be salvageable. So you're just kind of tracking that as, as one of your, your KPIs. In addition, how often do the, you know, if the HVACs are having issues, are they just automatically replacing them? Because I know if you go to most inspectors, they're just going to tell you to replace it. Um, whereas, you know, quality maintenance guys, if you can find a quality handyman or have ideally have the management team that has quality handyman on, on staff, they will be able to look at the, the HVACs and determine, oh, well, we can we can salvage this and replace this or or we can pair this instead of replace it. And, um, you know, sort, sort of in a sense, kick the can down the road on the actual replacement necessary. But sometimes that can be for a period of several years from a quick repair and that could save you thousands of dollars that year and, uh, you know, help extend the useful life of all of your, you know, your higher ticket products um, that you're going to be um having to keep an eye on um, over time with the properties. So the big things are always see how can you repair versus replace and just be proactive again on your, your expense side of things as well. I think it's the old saying that, uh, what is it, an ounce of prevention is, is worth a pound of repair. So hopefully staying ahead of th things and, and keeping uh, you know the, the proper repairs and prevention measures in place to to avoid having to replace everything and, and have, because those CapEx items can really add up big time. So just keeping an eye on that. Cool. And thanks for sharing those points. So any one advice that impacted you, Dylan? 
Yeah, I would say one of the early items that impacted me, something that I think is most important for probably operators that are earlier on in their career or for people that are past uh, are vetting deals uh, to invest into with other operators. I think there's there's a lot of talk and a lot of emphasis on expense ratios when it comes to looking at a 50% expense ratio and just kind of checking the box on that on, on a multifamily deal or you know, in a mobile home park deal might be a 40 to 50%, depending on the way things are being ran. So early on, I, I started to shift the model and, and look a lot more at the expenses per unit per year and weigh that up against the expense ratios. So I guess if I, if I were to give a big picture advice, it would be be cautious of rules of thumb that are, are given out in the space. Um, but if I were to give on a more granular level, you know, relating to this, I would say, you know, definitely, definitely know what your your all-in expenses should be on a you know per line item per unit per year, and I think that gives you a really good against a lot of people that may not be as familiar with those kind of numbers. So understanding that, you know, on a nicer on, on a nicer apartment complex, maybe your repairs and maintenance is, uh, you know, four or $500 per unit per year. Whereas on something that typically needs uh, a bit more ongoing repairs, I mean, it's a little bit older, you might might be as high as six or $700 per unit per year. And if it's a smaller complex, then you're going to have more contract labor in place that can be as high as a thousand dollars per unit per year. Understanding, you know, how these properties are staffed and realizing that your payroll can't be based on a percentage because you know that percentage will vary widely depending on the number of units and understanding you know, that that having at a certain threshold, uh, if it's a nicer, higher income property, maybe 80 units, but on a lower income property, it might be 120 units, can finally afford you those two on-site staff that you need of you know one one in, in the office, one out of the office, or you know, one community manager and one maintenance. And and just understanding where the dynamics of, of how each of those line items work and just paying attention to those and asking questions around those, I think uh, can help you a whole lot. So any one book that impacted your life and what way? Yeah, one book that I'm reading right now, which I'm getting to the tail end of that I think is, is a great read is the essays of Warren Buffett. And I think this this has been pivotal for me. It's definitely one of those books that I, I can see myself reading multiple times over again, um, as I typically do when I find a good read. This book actually has all of his annual reports uh, when it comes to anything that he's sent over the years. I don't know if it's everything, but it's a lot of what he sent over the years to you know Berkshire shareholders. And I found it extremely valuable because you get to see the way that Buffett and Charlie Munger look at a lot of the businesses that they they would evaluate and you see sort of their long-term outlook and how they weigh the the pros and cons of reinvesting additional capital expenditure money back into their businesses and finding the right ROIs on that and and I think they're just uh, they're very very open and you know very direct about um, everything that, that they're able to talk about when it comes to you know their wins and losses throughout each year and in different businesses and being in the right place at the right time and, and whatnot so I highly recommend that one thanks for sharing that so how are you giving back to community Dylan well, for me, a lot of my giving back over the last two years has has primarily just been through helping people, you know, in the in the space uh, from a mentorship perspective. I've done a lot of formal coaching over the last few years on you know coaching clients and working with them on you know, usually every other week basis to you know to help train them and get them through their early deals and hopefully been able to make an impact through that. And of course, outside of that, I'm always widely available to uh, to help anyone I can see a way of being able to help. Uh, you know, mastermind or provide advice those early on. I'm always happy to happy to jump on a call. Cool. So how can listeners can connect with you? 
Yeah, so you can always connect with me. I'm on Facebook and LinkedIn. If you search my name, you can also email me. I'd probably most, I'm probably easiest to get a hold of uh, via email. So that's Dylan, D Y L A N, at therequitygroup.com. That's the R E Q U I T Y group.com. Always happy to, uh, to connect on there as well. And um, outside of that, yeah, you can always uh, visit our website as well and, and uh, check out what we have going on. Cool. And thank you, Dylan. I really enjoyed the conversation. Okay. Thanks so much, Rama. Appreciate you having me on. If you like the show, please subscribe, share, rate, and review. And if you want to connect with me, please send me a message, info at ushacapital.com. Thank you for listening. Creating Wealth Through Passive Apartment Investing Podcast. I hope you learned something from the show. See you in the next episode. Thank you. Any information provided from these shows are educational purpose only. As always, please consult with your own CPA, legal and financial advisor before investing.